Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. My guest this week is Senator Chris Murphy, a member of the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's in a crucial position to shape and possibly reject one of the Biden administration's key foreign policy initiatives. The White House is working on a grand bargain that could see Saudi Arabia and Israel normalize diplomatic relations in return for American security guarantees. As the head of the Middle East subcommittee of the Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Murphy's in a critical position. And as you'll hear, he has big questions about the deal that's being worked on. I have been a very big supporter of President Biden's foreign policy. I have defended some of his most controversial moves, including pulling out of Afghanistan and most recently getting our hostages out of Iran. But this is one that I'll have to be sold on. So what role should America be playing in the Middle East? The close relationship between Saudi Arabia and the US has been one of the bedrocks of the post-war world order. But it's come under real strain recently. President Biden's visit to the Saudi kingdom last year was heavily scrutinised because of concerns over human rights and the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Mr. Biden said he raised the killing at the start of his meetings with MBS, where the fist bumping continued with other top U.S. officials. I was straightforward and direct in discussing it. For an American president to be silent on an issue of human rights, is this consistent with, inconsistent with who we are and who I am? Any warming between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. has to be seen in a larger global context. The Saudis are becoming much more active international players. It's just been announced that they'll join the BRICS, a grouping that includes Russia and China, and they recently hosted peace talks over Ukraine. Senator Murphy's a Democrat from Connecticut. His membership of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee means that he looks not just at the Middle East, but at the whole range of global issues. He was in London last week with a large bipartisan congressional delegation. I met Senator Murphy the morning after the killing of Yevgeny Prigozhin. So we began with Russia. Does he believe that Vladimir Putin's now firmly back in charge? Well, I don't think it's surprising that he's taken this action, um, but I don't know that his hold on power is any more stable. What Prigozhin did was exceptional. The fact that he got so close to taking out Putin speaks to the fact that there is a constituency within Russian political elites for a coup or for a transition of power. And so while Putin may have eliminated one specific enemy, that doesn't mean that his hold on power is any more secure in that next challenge may come from a corner of the oligarchy that we can't see yet. I think as the body count continues to climb, as he continues to be unable to hide the true cost of this war from the Russian people, as the ruble crumbles, there are going to be more and more like Prigozhin that are going to think about taking their shot. 
So is that something we should be hoping for? Well, it was interesting to me, you know, this brief period of time over the course of 12 hours, and a lot of Americans seem to be rooting for Prigozhin, who arguably is much worse and potentially even more evil than Putin is. No, I don't think we need to be in the position of rooting for regime change. But, you know, if you study Russian history, regime change often happens when a Russian leader has overextended the country militarily. And so I just don't think it's out of the realm of possibility to think that this is a moment where the deck may be reshuffled in the Kremlin. Nonetheless, I mean, I guess in a very brutal sort of way, this was an assertion of Putin's power. And speaking to some Russian analysts, they said, look, he's playing a waiting game. And part of the waiting game is the American election. He thinks that if he can just get to next year, you watch the Republican debates, there are people saying Ukraine should trade land for peace. Do you think that is a concern, that the depth of or the durability of Western and specifically American support for Ukraine in the context of the U.S. election? Well, Trump's decision to abandon Ukraine is a concern. I mean, let's just put our cards on the table. That's a problem. But I think his decision to abandon Ukraine is a very bad political bet on his part because the American people, I think, by and large, are still of the belief that this is really important for American security. I think you will see more and more Republican voters start to question Ukraine aid because many of them are part of this cult of personality surrounding Donald Trump. But, you know, if you travel through my state of Connecticut, admittedly a Democratic-leaning state, but a state with a lot of Republicans, you still see a lot of blue and yellow flying in front of people's houses, flags flying off of folks' front porches. There's, you know, a real sense of camaraderie between the American people and the Ukrainian people. And if Trump is the nominee, which I think he is, and he runs on a promise to pull out of Ukraine, I actually think that's going to hurt him politically. And though Putin may be making the bet that Trump will win, it may be that Trump's abandonment of Ukraine is part of what guarantees that he loses. Of course, this election is taking place while he's now facing four indictments. What do you say to sort of foreigners who I'm sure you'll get a lot of incredulity on this trip saying, you know, what is going on in America? And is it even possible that Trump could be convicted and still run? I mean, it certainly is possible. There's nothing that stops an individual who's in the middle of trial or, in fact, has been adjudicated from running for uh, the presidency. That's a sign of how broken the Republican Party is right now, that they can't bring themselves to quit this criminal. I think Joe Biden right now is the odds-on favorite to win and perhaps win handily if Trump is the nominee. But again, the Republican Party has become a bit of a personality cult, and Trump has deluded many of them into thinking that he has really done nothing wrong, that he in fact won the election, that all of his actions were legitimate. That may get him the nomination, but I just don't think it's a path towards winning the general election. And you're here in London as part of a bipartisan delegation. I mean, how much traditional bipartisanship can there be? It used to be said politics stops at the water's edge. You know, when you're here with your colleagues, do you find that you still have a kind of shared worldview or Republicans, Democrats increasingly look at each other with incredulity? Well, the pitch that I always make, especially when I'm outside of the United States, is that, you know, folks should not believe the hype about how fatally divided American politics are. I mean, we'll talk about foreign policy, but, you know, it is exceptional the amount of domestic bipartisan legislation that has passed in the last three years, whether it be the biggest infrastructure bill ever, America's first attempt at gun reform in 30 years, the CHIPS Act, which is really important to Europe as well, trying to bring the microchip industry back 
back to the United States and to Europe. All that is done with bipartisan support. Obviously, American politics, like British politics, is often covered as sport, and so we get very little credit for the times that we agree. We'll be talking about a number of topics here, but a lot of our discussion will be around China. And there really is pretty good Republican-Democratic alignment on the threat that China poses and the series of things we need to do, including investing in an industrial policy to try to manage China's rise on behalf of the United States and the transatlantic alliance. And so I think you'll see a lot of cohesion between our bipartisan, bicameral delegation when we're here, especially on you know, what we call the pacing threat to the Western alliance, the rise of China. Mm. And do you think that the transatlantic cohesion we've seen over Ukraine will survive when it comes to China? Because I know a lot of Europeans, Brits, maybe share some of the American concerns, but they're worried about the direction of American industrial policy in particular and that the CHIPS Act and so on will disadvantage not just China, but Europe. Yeah, listen, I think we've got to do a better job of integrating our policy when it comes to industrial policy with that of Europe. And that's not easy, but President Biden has taken some steps to do that, convening you know, a series of transatlantic meetings to try to get us on the same page. But I think that's part of why we're here is to say, Listen, we understand that we took a few big steps on our own. The Inflation Reduction Act, which supercharges our renewable energy industry, and the CHIPS Act, which restarts the American microchip industry. But hopefully steps three and four, whether that be critical minerals or investment in domestic medicine production, we can do in coordination with our allies. But that means Europe's got to move fast, too. And sometimes our frustration has been that, you know, when we're ready to act, Europe isn't always ready as well. And so that's part of the purpose of this trip is to find out the ways in which we can align our schedule in Congress with the schedule of the EU and domestic parliaments here. Yeah. I mean, you're here in Britain now. How much does the fact that Brexit has happened sort of complicate relations in the sense that you have to deal with Britain as a sort of separate policy entity from what the European Union is doing? Yeah, it's not great. (laughs) Just just be honest. It, It just increases the workload, you know, when it comes to this really delicate coordination. I mean, economic integration between the United States and Europe is more important than ever. It's more important than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And now, you know, our closest ally here is outside of the main economic institution guiding policy on the continent. And, you know, personally for the United States, it's a loss because we often relied on Britain's voice inside the EU at Brussels to represent our interests because our interests tended to be a little bit more aligned, let's say, on tech issues and some privacy issues and banking regulation issues. So we'll manage it. And obviously, we continue to come to Britain first when we have problems that we need to solve. But it does clearly make this process of coordination harder, which is why I still think it's in the United States' interest to cheerlead Europe, to try to squash any conversation about other countries leaving because America is stronger when the EU is stronger and more complete and more united. Now, you're specifically head of the Middle East subcommittee of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and there's a lot of talk, I know in D.C., less actually in Europe, about this grand bargain involving possibly Saudi-Israeli normalization with a big American role in it. And I think you expressed some skepticism about this. Tell me what's going on and why you're not totally sold on it yet. Well, I think this should be a topic of discussion here in Europe because what has been publicly reported 
is that there is under consideration a agreement in which Saudi Arabia would recognize Israel and normalize relations. That's a great thing, something the United States should support and something I would hope Europe would support. But in exchange, the United States would provide, amongst other things, a security guarantee for Saudi Arabia. If the United States is providing a security guarantee, maybe even through a treaty relationship with Saudi Arabia, that has implications for Europe, in part because we have obligations to defend Europe that are more important now than ever. And if we have added another country that we have obligations to in a region where we don't right now have treaty security architecture, there should be legitimate questions in Europe as to how is the United States going to spread itself (laughs) in a way to guarantee the protection of Europe while also guaranteeing the protection of a big country in the Middle East that tends to get into fights with its neighbors fairly often. So I have real questions about you know whether we have the capacity to extend our security umbrella, which already covers key countries and key allies in Asia and Europe to Saudi Arabia. And I have real questions as to whether that's in the United States' interests. I have been a very big supporter of President Biden's foreign policy. I have defended some of his most controversial moves, including pulling out of Afghanistan and most recently getting our hostages out of Iran. But this is one that I'll have to be sold on. I want a normalization agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel. But I'm not sure that the American people would support our nation getting further bogged down into Middle East military and political battles. And that might be a consequence of a security treaty with Saudi Arabia. And do you think Saudi Arabia is an appropriate country to extend the security guarantee to? I mean, President Biden make quite a lot of representing democracy globally. He called Mohammed bin Salman a pariah at one point after the Khashoggi murder We've just had a really alarming Human Rights Watch report on Saudis allegedly killing a lot of refugees trying to cross into their country. Why would America, other than pure realpolitik, maybe that's all it requires, extend a security guarantee to a country like that? Well, it is correct to point out that this would be the only security guarantee that we would provide to a non-democracy and you know, not just any run-of-the-mill non-democracy, a pretty brutal dictatorship that continues, as you mentioned, to show the ways in which its values do not align with American values. And, you know, I think that there is a hope that by drawing Saudi Arabia closer to the United States through this arrangement, that there could be better alignment between the United States and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf on China policy. And I think that's a really important conversation to have. If you really believe that the next 50 years is defined by whether it's U.S. and European product safety standards and financial regulation standards and tech standards that dominate the world or its Chinese standards, then you want as many friends with you as possible. And that means that you probably can't be as picky as you'd like as to whether those friends are only democracies or are democracies and non-democracies. And so I think the Biden administration is looking at this agreement with Saudi Arabia, not just as a means to get Israel normalization done, but also as a means to try to integrate us with the Gulf on China policy. And I'm open to hear that argument, but I remain very concerned about the message that it sends. The fight with China is a fight about which form of government this world is going to live under. And, you know, when you 
sort of fudge your support for democracy by getting closer and closer and closer to brutal dictatorships. It makes it a lot harder for you as a country and for us as an alliance to try to sell democracy around the world. And that's got to be a consideration for this administration. I know it is. And it certainly will be a consideration for Congress if this arrangement, this treaty comes before us for a vote. And do you think the administration has been driven to some extent by alarm at the sense that after Biden's tough words on Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman very overtly started to court the Chinese. The Chinese have sponsored the Iran-Saudi deal. And there's a kind of, you know, without wishing to be facetious about it, fear of missing out in America that, hang on, we're being edged out of this area where we used to dominate. I think Mohammed bin Salman has played his cards very well. I have always thought, particularly in the Middle East, that these Overtures, particularly when it comes to security partnership with China, are a bit of a red herring. There is no substitute for a security relationship with the United States. China is not going to come to the Saudis' defense in the way the United States would or may if there was a serious threat to their security. The technology they can provide is getting better, but it is not equal to what the United States can provide. Uh, And so I think we should be a little bit careful. They don't offer what the United States can offer, and I think we should be confident in that belief. What about the other side of the Saudi-Israeli equation, the Israeli side? I mean, again, it seems to me there must be questions about whether now is the time to give a big present to the current Israeli government, to the Netanyahu government, which is, you know, accused by half the country of undermining its own democracy. Well, ultimately, if there is an agreement between Saudi Arabia, the United States and Israel, I would assume that a component of that agreement is going to involve an expansion of Palestinian rights and steps that would revive the prospect of a Palestinian state. It is probably true that Mohammed bin Salman cares less about the Palestinian cause than his father, but it is still in the United States' interest, especially having seen some of the violence that has erupted in the past week, for us to make sure that if we are going to give these significant benefits to both Saudi Arabia and Israel through this agreement, that there be something in the end for the Palestinians. So I don't necessarily care about rewarding one government politically or another government politically. I just think it's in the U.S. interest to try to ultimately move towards a Palestinian state. And this agreement would be an opportunity to get this Israeli government or follow-on Israeli government to take some significant steps in that direction. Yeah. I mean, do you think, though, that one could assume that what the Israelis said that they would do on the Palestinian state, they'd actually deliver on? Because if you remember you know, the Oslo Accords and others, there's been plenty of talk before that this was the breakthrough and that something would happen. And given Israeli politics and the presence of people like Mr. Ben-Gavir in the cabinet, I'm not sure they would really deliver it, whatever they said. Hard to imagine that this government could deliver on significant concessions that would get us back on a path to a Palestinian state. You know, there's some interesting reporting in the United States suggesting that the only way that this agreement could work out is with a different Israeli coalition. You know, I have no inside read on whether that is true or not. But yes, this government as currently constituted doesn't seem to be the kind that would be able to deliver real meaningful promises to get us back towards a Palestinian state. That was Senator Chris Murphy ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. Please join me again next week. 
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.